Today on the Matt Wall Show, the Super Bowl last night was one long parade of leftist hypocrisy. We'll count the ways today. Also, we'll review some of the weird and woke commercials that companies spent millions of dollars to air during the broadcast. Plus, Nancy Pelosi officially slams the door shut on the defund the police movement. And Joe Biden speaks out against racism in the NFL. At least I think that's what he was doing. It's hard to tell anymore. In our daily cancellation, we'll deal with the latest leftist innovation. It's called platonic conscious co-parenting. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Constant Contact is a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed with email marketing, contact management, industry-leading list growth tools, social media ads, and more. Constant Contact helps small businesses connect with customers, find new ones, and sell online, all for one easy-to-use platform. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing. With a 97% deliverability rate, you can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever. Their list growth tools help you find a bigger audience fast. Lead generation landing pages, uh, text to join, and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync Constant Contact's tools with the tools you're already using. Powerful automation tools help you send the right message to the right person at the right time, every time. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit ConstantContact.com. So last night was the Super Bowl, as you may have heard. It was a game between the Cincinnati Bengals, a team with no fans at all outside of Cincinnati, and the Los Angeles Rams, a team with no fans at all anywhere outside Los Angeles or inside. Ultimately, the Rams prevailed, uh, marking the first NFL championship for a third-world country, which I thought was, was, was really nice. But truly, it was inspiring to see that even if L.A. can't stop gangs of hoodlums from ransacking stores and committing violent crimes or you know, prevent its sidewalks from becoming homeless refugee camps or clean up the trash that covers literally every square inch of that putrid and hideous city, it can at least score enough points to beat the Bengals. As it happens, the Super Bowl was, was actually played in Los Angeles this year, requiring an impressive effort by the city to clean up enough of the garbage and use needles so that fans had space to park their cars, at least. However, some people think that it isn't fair that, you know, one of the teams competing in the game got to host the game as well. And I agree that it isn't fair. There shouldn't be any more home Super Bowls, which is why I think every Super Bowl should be hosted in D.C. or Dallas from here on out, because that way... This will never happen again. But in any case, it, it was a good game, uh, I must admit. It was, it was also, along with being a good game, a festival of rank hypocrisy by the left. Now, remember, of course, that hypocrisy does not simply mean doing one thing while saying another. That might not be hypocrisy at all. That might be simple cowardice or inconsistency. Hypocrisy is pretending to believe things that you don't actually believe. And hypocrisy is endemic in our culture, which is a problem because it's impossible to have meaningful debates or come to any sort of understanding between sides if so many of the people involved in the conversation don't actually believe anything that they're saying. Now, if you've noticed that our debates are almost always fruitless and nobody is listening to anybody and nothing comes of any of it, this is why. Lots of people don't believe what they're saying. They don't believe much of anything at all, I think. Which brings us back to the Super Bowl, the biggest entertainment event of the year, an occasion for all of the country's biggest corporations to spend millions of dollars to make themselves visible because they weren't visible enough already, while also parading their wokeness around for the acceptance and approval of the sorts of people who pretend to be rebels against the system that caters to their every emotional whim. Now, it began with an, an unexpectedly respectful and well-executed national anthem performance Something the NFL can get away with, because, you know, they have to get away with doing a respectful national anthem these days. But they can get away with it because they also make sure to include the so-called black national anthem in the broadcast. We are a country, if you hadn't heard by now, with two national anthems. The original, written by Francis Scott Key, and then this other thing called Lift Every Voice and Sing. The NFL must lay these sacrifices upon the altar of wokeness so that the left won't accuse it of racism. Because, of course, an organization in which 60% of its athletes and a majority of its most visible stars are black has to constantly prove that it's not racist. And the efforts are all in vain, as always. No matter what the NFL does, 
It will always be labeled racist because that's how the game is played. The left derives much of its political power from the phantom of racism. They will not let that phantom go no matter how desperate and absurd the racism claims have to be. Speaking of which, just as a side note, Brian Flores, a story that we've uh, been tracking on this show, he's the former NFL head coach who's now suing the league for systemic racism. Just yesterday, uh, before the Super Bowl, he added the Houston Texans to his lawsuit. Now, he alleges that the Texans failed to hire him because of their racism. The inconvenient detail here is that the Texans didn't hire him because they wanted someone else who is also black. They hired a black head coach, but it was the wrong black head coach, and so they're still racist. Once again, this is how the game is played. But uh, to the black national anthem, uh, the, the well, yeah, the, the not the national anthem, but the fake one, the black national anthem. If you thought the idea of a racially tribalized national anthem couldn't get any more grotesque, wait until you see what it looked like when they performed it. Watch. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song. Does any other country in existence have this, by the way? Before, now lots of countries, almost every country, before some big event, uh, they're going to sing a national anthem. Does any other country have two? You know, if they've got the normal one and then another one for a specific racial group. But the singers there, they were performing with the accompaniment of the LA Youth Orchestra. And as you can see, if you're, if you're watching on the, uh, the video podcast, the lead adult performers didn't have masks on. The kids in the background did. There is something distinctly creepy and dystopian about the sight of two adults standing in front of a group of masked, faceless children. And it's a sight we've gotten used to, of course. It's also a sight that isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, Los Angeles, along with other big liberal cities across the country, um, they've begun to relax their mask mandates for everyone except school children. The people who least need the masks and who suffer the most psychologically and developmentally from wearing them are the people who will be forced to continue wearing them while everyone else gets to take them off. At the game last night, there was not even an attempt by any of the leftist luminaries in attendance to pretend that they take masking seriously. Just watch the announcers go through the litany of, of celebrities in attendance and notice what accessory is missing from all of these people. Watch. We're in Hollywood. Who do we got here? We got Jay-Z. Matt Damon. Lisa Ron is here. LeBron. Jennifer and Ben. Emmett Smith. There you go. There's my kind of celebrity. Yeah, now we're talking. I mean, where else would they be? Not a mask in sight. All of them maskless. LeBron James is wearing an entire diamond mine around his neck, but uh, he left the mask at home. Priorities, I suppose. And yet, even as LeBron and Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck and all the rest of them and Matt Damon um, and the mayor of Los Angeles all partied at the Super Bowl in a crowd of 75,000 revelers, all without masks, children in the city are currently sitting in classrooms fully masked. A festival of hypocrisy, like I said. And we haven't even made it to the halftime show. Halftime, sponsored by uh, the AARP, featured Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and 50 Cent, and also Mary J. Blige, because they, they knew they had to throw a woman in there for appearances sake. But all of these men are in their 40s and 50s. All were wheeled out of their retirement homes to perform their hit songs from back when they were relevant, and to embarrass millennials with children like myself by forcing us to admit to our kids that we used to listen to this kind of stuff. Um, the timing of this performance was interesting, though, because here are Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, on the biggest entertainment platform in the world. Um, performing to universal acclaim and adulation. And this is happening after three weeks of the left insisting that Joe Rogan shouldn't have a platform anymore because he said bad words a long time ago. Some might point out that Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Eminem also said bad words a long time ago and still say bad words today, in fact. Not long before Joe Rogan began making edgy jokes on his podcast, Eminem was rapping about killing gay people. He did that for like 10 years. That was his, 
<laughs> he dedicated like three albums to it. Yet he's allowed to have his platform, even the biggest platform. And he's allowed to stay on Spotify without objection. By the way, all these guys are on Spotify. I, I don't, I don't, when's the last time any, uh, any uh, other artist said, I've been pulling my, my music from Spotify until Eminem is taken off. But they're allowed to do this because in recent years, especially Eminem, you know, he's begun making his own payments on the woke altar. Like this. At the conclusion of the performance, Eminem dramatically took a knee. Another payment was made. The media afterwards hailed the, the move, congratulating the rapper for kneeling to honor Colin Kaepernick. Now, you notice how they're not even pretending that the knee thing has anything to do with police brutality anymore? Not even pretending. All the headlines are saying he was kneeling to honor Colin Kaepernick. Now that's why they do it. To honor a multimillionaire Nike brand ambassador and media personality. It's a totally empty gesture and always was, of course, like everything else from the left. Thus, in its own way, I suppose, a fitting tribute. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, we're in for a big battle over that uh, Supreme Court vacancy. And as you know, Justice Breyer recently renounced his retirement, handing Joe Biden the opportunity to get the most liberal person that he can find to fill a seat. What you may not know, however, is that there was a lot of money, money from unnamed sources put into getting Justice Breyer to retire in the first place. Our friends over at the Judicial Crisis Network are raising the alarm about the role those dark money groups are playing in the effort to get a radical appointed to the Supreme Court. At the very top is a group called Arabella Advisors. They fund a lot of far-left groups, including Demand Justice. The New York Post reported that Demand Justice ran a bullying campaign against Justice Breyer, using their considerable resources to force him into retirement. They even went so far as to drive a mobile billboard around the Supreme Court that said, Breyer, retire. It's time for a black woman Supreme Court justice. There's no time to waste. And it worked. Now they're pouring a ton of money into getting a radical liberal Supreme Court nominee who will serve as a rubber stamp for their unpopular far-left agenda. The Judicial Crisis Network is calling them out with a big ad campaign designed to shine a light on liberal dark money groups and their plans to transform America. You can find out more on Twitter at, at Judicial Network or at JudicialNetwork.com. All right. Uh, uh, I, I would be remiss for mentioning it is Valentine's Day as well. Happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate, um, which is everybody begrudgingly. Here's the thing about Valentine's Day. Um, speaking as a married man of 10 years and, and also as a, as a love guru of sorts, um, it, it is the ultimate catch-22 for men. Because on the one hand, you know, you can't do nothing for Valentine's Day. I would, I would hope that most men know this, that you don't want to fall into the, the trap. You, you can't literally ignore the day. Even if you have a wife like I do who says, uh, that, well, I, I don't care about Valentine's Day. I would hope, and maybe there's some 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 younger guys out there. You just got married, and and you're not as familiar. Um, you don't know how this works, and you might make the mistake. You might your your, might, your wife might say, oh, I don't really care about Valentine's Day, and then so February 14th comes along, and you don't do anything because she said she doesn't care about it. But here's the thing: you make that mistake only once in your life. So even if you have, you know, wives who, who basically don't care that much. Um, you can only take the, that indifference so far. You can only depend on it so much. But on the other hand, you can't actually try to be sincerely romantic on Valentine's Day because there's no way to do that without seeming corny and forced. It's like, I don't know, it's like um, it's like wearing the band's T-shirt to their own concert. It's too sort of on the nose. Also, if, you're, if you aren't romantic any other time of the year, you can't try it on Valentine's Day without it being totally transparent. And if you are romantic other times, then there's no reason to go heavy on the, on the Valentine's Day stuff. So this is what you're left with. Kind of, uh, you, you can't do nothing, but you can't do too much. And that's why Valentine's Day is the ultimate women's holiday, really. You know a woman come, came up with it. Because they love putting men in these kinds of situations. It's entrapment, basically. That's what the whole day is. And I'm just going to hope my wife doesn't listen to the show today and hear this part. But here's the thing. Everything I'm saying right now, I got, I got a bunch of snitches in the audience. And every time I talk about any story involving my wife, people will go on Twitter. Did you, did you hear what Matt said today? Go listen to the show and they'll give her, their time, give her the timestamps and everything. There are, there are moles in the sweet baby gang. And I'm going to find you people out and ban you from the show. Um, all right. So, uh, what's that? 
Oh, yeah. I was I was told to uh, that I was given. Okay. You know, uh, the control room, they know how much I love surprises, especially holiday-themed surprises, which is what I'm thinking this is. So I was given this uh, card, I guess, and told to open it. Oh, there's a box with it, too. Okay. All right. Oh, here we go. North Pole Pals. Oh, it's a chocolate walrus. Now, see, that actually is a nice surprise. I didn't even know they made those. Uh, it's not Valentine's Day theme. It's more of a it's more of a Christmas thing, but that's that's nice. That's good. Like Johnny the Walrus, it harkens back to Johnny the Walrus, which is my children's book. If you never heard me mention that before, go to JohnnyTheWalrus.com. Uh, you're from your loyal producer McKenna. I'll always circle back for you. This is from uh, uh, and there we got Jen Pisaki there, and it's signed by everyone. That's a uh, very nice and uh, thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks for that. I, uh, I'm crying. I'm, my gratitude, as you know, is all is all internal. I feel a lot of gratitude for this gift, but it's all I feel it inside. I can't express it outwardly. So, but I do like the chocolate though. Go to JohnnyTheWalrus.com. All right. Um, so, a couple of Super Bowl ads that I want to play. Well, we'll play just parts of them because you know, um, not worth playing the entire thing. This to me was the, well, we'll start with this. Uh, this is clip eight. So this is Google put out, I, I think they, they went, they probably won the trophy. Los Angeles, they won the trophy for, the, uh, for, for winning the Super Bowl. But the trophy for wokest ad, I think, has to go to Google because they put out an ad advertising their new phone, I guess, which has great camera technology, which is, which is fine because everybody wants, I guess the, camera, the cameras on the phones are never good enough. I, I think that's like the, what we have now is is probably enough. It kind of it captures the scene well enough, but we got to keep improving the cameras. So they put out an ad that, that advertises that, but in the context of the ad, they basically accused cameras, other cameras, cameras before this one, of being racist. So let's uh, I'll probably have to narrate some of this because it's mostly visual. But let's let's play this. So it's historically, camera technology hasn't accurately represented have a dark skin tone. Every single yearbook photo of mine has been terribly shot since I was a kid. I always show up as too dark or shiny. Cause if you love me, you love all of me. Introducing real tone. Everything on Google the Pixel 6. There we go. Oh, baby, give me light. I think that's, is that Lizzo in the background touches. singing there? I think it is. You know, it's a problem. You know, we talk about Lizzo too much on the show, and I can actually identify one of her songs. I can identify her voice. That's a problem. All right. So there's the, basically the ad. And a lot of, and then we see pictures, a lot of non-white people, and they're nice. They're not, oh, there's Lizzo there. There she is. Everyone deserves to be seen as they truly are. Um, so the point is that, uh, that previous to this, cameras were systemically racist and you were not able to take a picture of a non-white person. All the picture look, pictures look bad and Google is fixing that now. Now, here's the thing. Um, if, there's a, uh, if, if in the past, cameras, you know, the lighting with, with the camera technology wasn't good or that you could just advertise that, you could, you could make that point in your ad and it would be fine. But everything has to be framed in a racial context if it can be. And it turns out that everything can be. They'll find a way to do it. And so even this ad for a camera is, uh, is, is framed in a racial context. Which, by the way, um, if there's some idea that there's like white privilege when it comes to cameras and, and pictures, I look horrible. I look like a ghost in all, every picture that's ever been taken of me. I look, I look dead. I look like I've been dead and in the ground. For five days and every single picture taken of me, which you might point out, I look like that in real life, but, but I, I look, I look even, even worse in the pictures. So if you're white, then you end up looking kind of more pale in pictures. Oftentimes, I guess if you're black, oftentimes you end up looking darker in pictures. So I, I think that just has to do with lighting and you could probably solve a lot of those problems just by positioning your camera differently and making sure the lighting is better. Just a thought. But the creepiest ad, I think, was uh, the company formerly known as Facebook, which is now Meta. And uh, they put out this ad for their virtual reality. 
their new virtual reality feature, which isn't even a feature. That's going to become, this is their vision. They want, uh, they want the internet to become, they want the, the virtual reality, the metaverse to replace the internet. And here's their ad for it. Let's put this up here. It's kind of hard to understand what's happening in this ad. But this looks to be like a, like, you know, a Chuck E. Cheese knockoff and you've got those animatronic animals. And the Chuck E. Cheese shuts down, because all the Chuck E. Cheeses are shutting down. It's kind of sad. The animatronic animals are, they, they send them to a pawn shop and kind of repurpose them in a mini golf course. That's not, now he's just thrown, to, now they're going to throw them away because they don't need the animatronic animals anymore. And then he's rescued. And someone sees the animatronic animal and puts the VR headset on him. And now he has, now he is reborn. He has a new life now in the metaverse where nobody has any legs. You are a disembodied half husk of a, of a person in, in the metaverse. Old friends, new fun. Meta Quest 2. Okay. I don't know exactly what the point is in that ad is, but I think what they're trying to say, like if, if I were to interpret it, it seems like they're saying that we as human beings are like these useless, old, outdated, animatronic toys. And now we need the metaverse to be reborn and to be given a, a new purpose in life. That's not creepy at all, is it? No. All right, let's uh, move to this. Before the Super Bowl, Joe Biden wandered into an interview with NBC, and uh, a couple of uh, questions were thrown his way. Not very many. You know, he doesn't sit, out, sit down for very long interviews these days, and they keep the questions very simple and very easy. And he still finds a way to sound incoherent in answering them. So first he's asked about masking, and uh, here's his answer to that. You were interviewed a year ago about the Super Bowl, and you expressed hope that come this year that they'd be able to fill the stands again with people. And that apparently is going to be the case. However, many of those people won't be wearing masks, despite the, the local law in Los Angeles. What is your message to people who want desperately for this to be over and to be able to resume the lives that they remember? Well, look, um, I love how people talk about personal freedom. If you're exercising personal freedom, freedom put someone else in jeopardy, their health in jeopardy. I don't consider that being very dealing with freedom. It's about moving in a direction you know is likely to diminish the prospects that this virus continues to spread. And so I, uh, I think people should get the shots. We know the shots work. We know they work for the kind for the uh, the variants that are available or the, that we are dealing with now. We know we have so many more tools at our disposal to prevent death and prevent serious illness. And I, I just think they should be careful. And if they're not careful for themselves, at least think of their children. Think of their, you know, their families. Kind of hard to understand what he's, what he's even trying to say there uh, as he continues to fall apart more and more each day. But think of, think, of the, think of the children, he says. Think of the children. Yeah, well, the children now, as we covered, children are the only ones that have to wear masks anymore at least in the, in the worst places in America. Now, if you're not in one of the worst places in America, hopefully even your kids don't have to wear them anymore. Um, but in all of the worst cities in America, children are the only ones that have to wear it. So think about them. Yeah, we, we should think about them. Think about their mental and psychological well-being. Think about their developmental well-being as well. Maybe, maybe that's something we should take into consideration. The uh, conversation continued, and now Lester Holt asks Joe Biden about the claims of racism in the NFL. And if you thought his answer on masking was kind of incoherent and rambling and hard to understand, well, get a load of this. Once again, Super Bowl, another controversy over the NFL. This about alleged racial hiring practices. Do you think the NFL, because of its, its broad influence, should be held to a higher standard when it comes to issues like this? Well, I think it should be held a reasonable standard. And, you know, uh, the commissioner pointed out they haven't lived up to what they committed to. They haven't lived up to being open about hiring more minorities to run teams. And uh, whether or not, you know, Goodell says they're going to take a look at what, whether they can meet the standard. And the standard was set 
by, you know, uh, someone who said this is something we should do. Think about it. It's I think it's the whole idea that um, a league that is made up of so many athletes of color as well as so diverse that there's not enough African-American qualified coaches to quote to manage these NFL teams. It just seems to me that it's a standard that that they'd want to live up to. I don't know if it's not a requirement of law, but it's a requirement, I think, of some just generic decency. Some what? Some did you say generic decency? Genetic decency? What did he say? Um, my favorite part of that answer was when he said another inspiring moment from Joe Biden. He said the standard was set by someone who said this is something we should do. Oh well, okay. Well, n- never. Okay, well, if it was set by someone who said this is something we should do, then how how can anyone object? I mean, is so- someone said that we should do it, so we should do it. You know, I don't know if I really agree with this standard. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Hey, listen, man. This standard was set by someone who said this is something we should do. Oh, well, okay. Because No, I, I thought the standard was set by someone who said we shouldn't do it. In which case, we shouldn't do it. Because then even the person who set the standard thinks we should. But if the person who set the standard thinks we should do it, then who are we to not obey the standard? <laughs> this guy. I, I love you. Joe Biden, it, it's always fun watching it because... You can tell in the middle of a sentence when he'll give up on a sentence in the middle of it and he'll kind of you can tell in, the, in, in that sentence you could almost you could see kind of the, the, the thought bubble and read it because he starts he starts speaking and he goes, the standard was set by someone who and then right at that moment in his head, he's freaking out because he doesn't know where he's going with the sentence. He, and he realizes that he doesn't know who set the standard or what standard they're even talking about. So he just throws some words in to, to get out of that sentence and bail out. And then he resets, and he always resets with a rejoinder like, think about it, or listen, or come on. Anytime one of those phrases are used when Joe Biden is speaking, think about it, listen, or come on, it means that what came right before that made no sense at all. And it was just his way of resetting and trying to start over again. So it's always a lot of fun. But we know that, um, yeah, there's a lot of racism in the NFL. I mean, they, they uh, uh, b- because NFL teams... As we've covered, 60% of the league is, is uh, made up of black athletes, even though black people only count for 13% of the population. And if you were to, to narrow that down to black men, it's probably, you know, I don't know, 5 or 6% or something. Um, and yet they account for, for, for 60% of, of the NFL, of the players in the NFL. And they com- comprise the majority of most positions, right? And, and even positions where they were underrepresented historically— uh, now even that is changing. Like in quarterback, I mean, m- many of the, the the most exciting, young, talented um, quarterbacks coming into the league now are black. So you look at that and you think, well, well, it, it seems like the NFL basically their strategy of the strategy of most teams is to put the best person for the job into each position. Now, a lot of teams are very bad at making that analysis. Okay, if you're a fan in Cleveland or Detroit or Jacksonville uh, or Washington, D.C. or Philly or New York or Dallas, you know that, that oftentimes teams are not very good at actually finding out who the best player is. But that is what they're trying to do. All evidence points to that. And that's how you end up with 60% of the league is black. And yet we're told that in the one specific area of head coach, there are teams saying that, no, 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 I don't, even if this person it would, be, would be the best coach and he would lead us to five Super Bowls in a row, I don't want him because he's black. That's the theory. That's the theory of the case, is that that's what's happening. That there are teams who are choosing to forfeit victories and Super Bowls and therefore money because they don't want to put qualified black head coaches in that position. But they'll put qualified black people in every other position on the team. It's just total nonsense. Absolute nonsense. All right. Um, on ABC on Sunday, Nancy Pelosi put the nail, basically, in the coffin of the uh, defund the police movement. Let's listen to that. The other thing that's weighing on people right now is rising crime. 
Uh, and there appear to be some divisions among Democrats about how to handle it. Your colleague, Karen Bass, running for mayor of Los Angeles, is trying to increase the police force yes. in L.A. Corey Bush, congresswoman from Missouri, is saying it's time to defund the police. He's sticking by that. You're the speaker. How do you think Democrats should address rising crime? Well, with all the respect in the world for Corey Bush, that is not the position of the Democratic Party. Community safety, to protect and defend in every way, is our oath of office. And I have sympathy. I con- we're all concerned about mistreatment of people, and that's why uh, Karen Bass had the Justice and Policing Act, and we would hope to get some of that done, whether it's no knock or joke hold, or some of those issues, even if we can't get it all done. But, the f- but make no mistake, community safety is our responsibility. And uh, I-, I quote one of my colleagues from New York, Richie, Richie Torres, a brand new member of Congress, way on the left, uh, saying that defund the police is dead. That causes a concern with a few in our caucus. But public safety is our responsibility, and I support what Karen Bass is doing, and Mayor Adams of, of New York. Um, it's pretty good walrus, by the way, as far as walruses go. Yeah. Don't listen to anything she said. I know I, know I certainly wasn't. Uh, what we can't let the Democrats do, just like with, with masking, with lockdowns and everything else, tra- change, after all the damage has been done, change courses, you know, make a, make a sharp right turn in this case, and not that far right, but just, you know, away from, away from the ledge slightly. And then... Um, and then what? Expect us to say bygones be bygones, all is forgiven? Yeah, they're they're abandoning the defund the police movement, um, even though it's still you still have people like Cory Bush hanging on to it, who Nancy Pelosi professes to have utmost respect for. No, she doesn't. No one has respect for Cory Bush. Why would you? There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing respectable about her. She's a horrible scumbag. Um, but now they're gonna they're they're getting away from it after after years of paying lip service to the defund the police movement, encouraging it, and actually defunding the police in some of these uh, in some of these cities, um, and where the police were not actively defunded, they've still been their effect has been mitigated. They've been undermined. So the defund the police movement may have not led to. Uh, it, it may not have successfully led to what, what these people wanted, which was to actually defund the police all across the country. There was some of that, but where, where they couldn't defund the police, instead they just undermined the police as much as they possibly could. Both through rhetoric and also by putting these Soros-funded DAs in there who um, every time the police capture a bad guy and send him over to the court system, the court system says, oh, thanks for doing that, and then just tosses him back out the door onto the street again. And now, after all it's been done for years, um, many lives lost because of it, chaos and anarchy in our streets because of it, even more chaos and anarchy, now they want to say, oh, never mind, we're not going to do that. Changed our mind. Just like forcing people to wear masks for years, shutting down businesses, all, eh, never mind, we, you know, the, the facts on the ground have changed, so we, we're going we're gonna to change with them. No, nothing changed. This was always a horrible idea. It was never anything but horrible. It was always going to cause profound damage. It was meant to, and it did. And it's too late now to say, never mind. Because that damage has been done. All right. I want to play this for you also. Now, this is another one. I feel like this uh, in this in this episode, the people watching it on video are experiencing some privilege because there's been a few a few different things that don't translate as well to audio. But I've got to play this because it's just it's too good. Um Michelle Wu, who's the mayor of Boston, decided to do a little Instagram live session a couple of days ago. And uh, that's always risky, you know, because you're live on the air and you're, you're opening yourself up to questions and you don't know what questions are going to be asked. Um, we do this so we have all access live here. If you become a Daily Wire member, you get, you get access to all access live. And where we sit down and we're live and we're just answering any questions that come up. Right. So this is what she did. Only a little bit of a riskier proposition because she's on on Instagram and she's sitting there 
um, I guess expecting that there'd be a whole bunch of softball questions. That's not how it turned out. So just let's play some of this and we'll, so here she is. Go ahead and play this. Um, She's unable to join. Okay, now she's sitting there, looking extremely awkward. And you, you can see in her eyes the panic setting in, and she's trying her best. But every single question is, you're okay. ruining the city. In the meantime, I will try to just fill time by, by answering any questions anyone has. She's, um, she's going to answer any question anyone has, but she's not answering any of the questions. a lot of friends who... Uh, have different, oh, happy new year. Yes, year of the there tiger. Very, very cute. All the other questions are, you're ruining the city, you're horrible, and the mask mandates. When will you lift the mandates? That's actually a fair question. She could answer that. Okay, when will you lift we're, the... we're checking with the congresswoman's team, and if, if it comes down to it, I will log out and log back in. Unmask our kids. Doesn't want to answer that. You almost feel sorry for it. Almost. Almost watching this. And the mandates. Recall her. Just every single comment. Why don't you care about your people? Fair question. Fair question. See, now she's just sitting there. She's given up. She's looking for her way out. What's my favorite thing about Boston Winter? Um, I, I, I love snow. <laughs> Here's what, this is why I wanted to play that entire thing. Because she sits down for Instagram Live, assuming that the internet will be nice to her. And that's mistake number one. Never assume the, the, the internet will be nice to you, especially when you are a, oh, uh, an incompetent, tyrannical mayor who's ruined your city. You definitely don't want to assume it then. Um, but she thinks you get a bunch of softball questions. She doesn't. And so all the questions are, why are you ruining the city? What are you doing is horrible. When will you lift the mandates? All the comments and questions are fair, but of course she doesn't want to engage with any of those. And then at the very end, she finally gets... A softball question, the kind that she was hoping to get, which is, what's your favorite thing about winter? Because, by the way, you know that when this started and it was going the wrong way, they they were scrambling on the other side. They, they were getting staffers on Instagram Live to throw out the softballs. And so one of the staffers, they're in the next room and they type out the softball question. What's your favorite thing about winter, Mayor? And she can't even answer that. Even that she can't answer it. You're the mayor of Boston. And someone says, what's your favorite thing about winter? Um, uh, dude, I like the snow. Even that was too hard for her. I swear that the most unimpressive people in the country become politicians. The most unimpressive. All right, one last thing. Let's just throw this up on the screen. This is a tweet from uh, Noam Scheiber, who is a labor reporter at the New York Times. And you know this is my favorite genre of tweet. I love these. Um, this is the made-up uh, kid's story that's supposed to have some kind of political message. So he says, me to eight-year-old, What? who do you want to win, the Bengals or the Rams? Eight-year-old, what difference does it make? It's not like the winner is going to solve climate change. Super Bowl weekend in the Scheiber-Sullivan household got heavy real quick, Noam says. I, you just knew. Of, of course he hyphenates it. You knew that was going to happen, didn't you? Of course it's the Scheiber-Sullivan house. Um, now, a totally made-up story, obviously. Okay, no no eight-year-old's going to respond that way. Hey, you really want to watch the game, son? Who do you think is going to win? What, what's the point? There's climate change. Systemic racism. Dad, I just, I just can't. I just don't care. You know it's made up, but... What's the point of the made-up story? If this, if this actually happened in real life, then that would mean that Noam Scheiber is a horrible father who is psychologically tormenting his children to the point that his eight-year-old is already a joyless, empty husk of a person who, who, who's, who just sits around fretting about climate change instead of wanting to watch a football game. So you're making up a story where if the story is true, that's the moral of the story. You're trying to convince people that you psychologically torment and abuse your kids. Which, by the way, Noam, I believe that you do. So, trust me, I believe you. Um, but I still don't think that, that story is true. 
You know, keeping your internet connected devices updated is always a good idea, not just for consumers, but for companies as well. One bug getting a, a lot of media attention lately is called Log4j. Cyber criminals can exploit this bug to break into a server and steal data. That's just one of the ways that we put our information at risk on the internet every day. It's a new way, and in an instant, a cyber criminal could steal what's yours, sometimes even harm your finances, your credit, your reputation. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, like your social security number, uh, if it's for sale on the dark web. If they detect your information has potentially been compromised, they'll send you an alert. You have access also to a dedicated restoration specialist if you do become a victim, so you have multiple levels of protection. And no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can help protect what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com slash Walsh. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. Let's get to our comment section. Daily cancellations are the law and order of the day. All right, sweet uh, dailywire.com slash sweet baby comments. Comments if you want to leave a um, leave a video comment. Let's see what we have here. Um, let's go to clip 11. Hey, Matt Walsh. So I just saw your video of the teacher uh, showing the reaction of her students when she told them they don't have to wear masks anymore. I thought it was very interesting because I'm also a teacher in Nevada. Yesterday, when I told my students they don't have to wear their mask anymore, I got a very mixed reaction. Half of my class was like the teacher in the video where they were very excited and ready to take the mask off. I had kids wanting to burn their mask, basically. But then I had some students who were had a very different reaction. A lot of them were afraid to take off the mask because they kept asking if Corona was going to get them now because their parents instilled this fear in them. And then I had several girls, especially, afraid to take the mask off because they didn't want to show their face. They were too afraid to show their face because they didn't want people to make fun of the way that they looked. This was absolutely heartbreaking to me. And it wasn't just one or two girls. It was multiple girls in my class who had this concern. And it just really showed me the psychological trauma that these masks have had on children. Oh, and of course, Sweet Baby Gang for Life. Yeah, I thought about that. Thanks for that story. I mean, it's, uh, it is horrifying and, and really sad. But I thought about that when we played the clip on Friday that she's referencing of the kids in elementary school. And they're told the mask mandate is going to be lifted and they, and they are, are celebrating joyously. Um, and I said, even that video, it's, not, it's great to see that the kids are happy and that they don't have to wear the stupid masks anymore. So it's a good video in that sense. But it's also a terrible video because it shows what these kids have been subjected to for two years. Um, that now they're so excited to be able to take the masks off. But then I also thought to myself, you know, an even worse version of that video is one where the kids are told, hey, you can take the masks off and um, they don't care or even they're, they don't want to. They're afraid to take it off. Which based on that comment, and I'm sure there are many more, um, uh, you know, many, many other teachers and parents who could, who have similar stories. You know, a lot of kids are in that boat. There are, you know, it's, it's bad enough to have kids who have, have been forced to wear the mask for two years and they've, and they've been resisting it this entire time and they've hated it this entire time and they're desperate to take the damn thing off. That's, that's bad. The even worse scenario would be the kids who have been wearing it this entire time and don't hate it anymore and actually are desperate to keep it on because they've been convinced by the conditioning, the brainwashing, that if they take the mask off and walk outside their house, they're going to die. And for those kids, um, I, I have to believe that the damage can be undone, that, that, that it can be repaired some way, but it's not going to be an easy fix. You know, when you condition young children to be afraid of fresh air, to see everyone around them as physical threats to them, as, uh, as biological weapons, you know, walking biological weapons. When you condition kids to see the world that way and see each other that way, um, it, it, that's, not, that's, not, that's not an easy thing to reverse, put it that way. All right, one more comment. Uh, so let's play clip 12. 
Hey Matt, huge fan of the show, longtime listener. Um, however, I do remember the day I was listening and you made that joke about us being sweet babies and you being sweet daddy. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I hope this joke doesn't stick. And maybe this will get me banned from the show, but you know what? I don't care because every day we have to listen to videos of people calling you daddy. And that's your fault. You have made this bed, sir. And now we all have to lie in it. So yes, the sweet baby gang does truly seem to be for life. First of all, how dare you say sweet baby gang for life after that propaganda and victim blaming, victim blaming me. I, I might have said the sweet daddy Walsh thing. Okay, I might have said it. But everybody should know you don't you don't follow every order given to you, even in a cult. So that's not just fault. Listen, just following orders is never an acceptable moral excuse. There are times when you should know better. And and this was one of those times. So I, I take zero responsibility for it or for anything else in my life. Well, thanks for the comment. Uh, you're banned from the show. All right. A couple of written comments here. Um. KL says, Matt, I like you, but your subway slander has gotten out of hand. Please ban me from the show. Okay, it's a lot of, it's a, a lot of people getting banned. Uh, you're getting banned also. Uh, yeah, we, this is a conversation we had on Twitter yesterday about the, uh, the best sandwich chains in America. And the official ranking, by the way, and this is important for you to know this, this is of, of sandwich chains. So I don't want anyone, I don't need any, any hipster to tell me, oh, but my local deli is better. I'm not talking about your local deli. I'm talking about sandwich chains. And the ranking goes like this. Number one is Jersey Mike's. Number two is Firehouse Subs. Number three is Pot Bellies. Number four, um, and, this, and at number four, this is usually where we would put Quiznos, but Quiznos basically doesn't exist anymore, our RIP. And so instead, we're putting Jimmy John's there. Number five is Arby's. Number six is like a, an old, uh, lukewarm egg salad sandwich from the gas station. And then number seven is Subway, way at the bottom. Because Subway, the only advantage that Subway has, and the only reason it's, that it exists and that it's as powerful as it is, is that the stuff is really cheap. But it's not even as cheap as it used to be. I mean, I can remember going back back in the day, you go into Subway, and remember $5 a foot long? It wasn't all that long ago. Now, that, now they're trying to get like 8 or $9 out of you for a foot long sub with stale bread, disgusting spoiled meat, wilted lettuce and 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 you know, pickles and olives that have been sitting there for days. Literally any sandwich chain is better than Subway. And on top of that, they all smell bad. Every, that's the worst thing about it is you, um, you, you walk into Subway and it has this weird, like, it's hard to even put your, your finger on it exactly what it is. And if you did find out what it is, I'm not sure you'd want to put your finger on it, but it's this weird kind of almost like disturbing, unsettling smell. And you can never quite figure out what it is exactly. And I've heard people tell me, oh, it's the bread baking. No, I know what bread baking smells like. There's, there's nothing better. There's no better smell in the world than fresh baked bread. That is not the Subway smell. I don't know what it is, but all, they all smell bad. They taste bad. They're terrible. The customer service is always bad everywhere, every single Subway. But I'll still eat it. Um, what else do we got? Uh, let's see. There's one other here. I want to... This is from Frederick. It says, it's funny when the gender fluids say, I use they, them pronouns, but actually they don't use them at all. No, they use I, me pronouns like everybody else, but everybody, everyone else has to use they, them for them. So to be accurate, it should be, I want everybody to use they, them pronouns for me. And that does have a different ring to it. It sounds a lot more demanding if you ask me. That's a very good point. And it speaks to what I talk about all the time with the pronouns, which is someone is, is assigning words to you that you have to use. They, they are telling you how you have to perceive them and how you have to speak about them when they're not even present. Because most of the time, most of the time when you're using a pronoun about somebody, it's because they're not there. You know, you're not, you're not going to point to a guy and say him usually if he's sitting right there. You're just going to refer to him by his name. Um, so that is, is already a big problem. And that's just not how language works. It doesn't work that way. But actually, it's worse than even you have made it out to be. Because actually, if they, them is their pronoun, allegedly, then the pronouns they should be using in reference to themselves when they're speaking should be we, us. If we're supposed to talk about them as if they're multiple people, 
then they should be doing the same. But of course, nobody does that because you'd sound like a lunatic. You'd sound like a schizophrenic lunatic if you did that. If you walked around and, and referred to yourself as we and us, um, nobody would take you seriously. They would assume that you're insane. Exactly. So when they talk about themselves, they use a, uh, a singular. They talk about themselves as if they're a single person, I and me. But when we refer to them, we have to pretend that they're multiple people. Again, insane, and no one should have to do it, and no one should ever play along with any of this. The opening weekend of our first original production shut-in was a major success. Not only did, the, did uh, our premiere reach over half a million views, but the reviews are in, and shut-in has a critic score of 100%. There's a shocker, and an audience score of 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Only a shocker because you figure the critics would not be able to help themselves but give it a negative review. Uh, but uh, you know, everyone seems to agree. It's a good movie. IMDb is 8 out of 10. That's huge also because making a film... Let alone a good one is never easy, but we did it. We produced a film, and it's really freaking good. That's why, if you missed it, I implore you to head to dailywire.com slash subscribe and get a membership today. The film is now exclusively streaming for Daily Wire members, and if you're not a member by now, then you're missing out. This might be our first original production, but it will not be our last. We also released the new trailer for Hyperions, the anti-superhero movie starring Carrie, um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's the, the Princess Bride guy. How do you pronounce his last name? Yulwiz? Yulwiz? Ilwes. Ilway? Anyway, comes out in a few weeks. And Terror on the Prairie, our new Western starring the amazing, uncancelable Gina Carano. I can pronounce that. She's coming. Uh, that's coming out this summer as well. For those of you who don't know, this weekend was the one-year anniversary of Gina getting fired from Disney and us announcing our movie deal with her. So we're very excited to make good on that promise and bring Gina's awesome movie to you. We're creating more and more great entertainment without a leftist agenda, and it's all thanks to our Daily Wire members. So head to dailywire.com slash subscribe today so you can watch Shut In, Hyperion's, and Gina's new movie out this summer. You know, as my status within the LGBTQ plus community continues to grow, so does the cultural importance of my best-selling LGBTQ plus children's book, Johnny the Walrus. This is why I was invited to Dr. Phil to discuss these most important issues with experts who could not even tell me what a woman was. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend you check it out. And even more importantly, if you haven't picked up a copy of my best-selling children's book, you should do so immediately. It sold out in 48 hours when it was released, but don't worry. More copies are on the way. Reserve Johnny the Walrus now on Amazon or go to johnnythewalrus.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. There was a time when CNN host Van Jones could have been considered one of the nuttiest and most radical leftists in America, but these days, when the cable news landscape features luminaries like Joy Reid, Jones often gets lost in the progressive shuffle, unfortunately. He still has his moments, no doubt, like when he wept for tears of joy after CNN declared Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 election, declaring that somehow it's, uh, it's easier to be a parent and easier to be a dad now with Trump out of office. But moments like that have been fewer and farther between for Van. Even more troubling, there have actually been occasions in recent years where he said things that seem damn near lucid like teetering dangerously close to the edge of sanity. This is a real problem for his brand, which may explain the latest news. Speaking of being a parent, Van Jones has announced that he welcomed a new baby into the world this month, um, his third child after his first two that he had with his ex-wife, who he divorced back in 2018. But he's trying something a little bit different for the third installment. In a statement to People Magazine, Van said, After the COVID lockdown, I got clear that I wanted another kid. I discovered that my friend uh, Noemi also wanted a baby, so we decided to join forces and become conscious co-parents. It's a concept that I hope more people will explore and consider. This month, we welcome to Earth a baby girl whom we will raise as co-parenting partners. This is a special time for our families. I feel grateful, joyful, and blessed as we create a safe and loving environment for this blessed young soul. I respectfully ask for privacy. Thank you for all the love and support. Yes, he asks for privacy. Because when you want privacy, you send a statement to People Magazine. Everyone knows that. I personally send People Magazine my personal uh, itinerary every single day with a point-by-point -point explanation of everything I'll do and everywhere I'll be, along with a note that I just want privacy. And then they, just, they email me back every day saying, who are you exactly? More to the point, Van Jones said that um, he was bored during the COVID lockdowns and he decided he wanted another kid. Unfortunately, he isn't married to a woman at the moment, but no matter, he decides to team up with a platonic friend and have a child as conscious co-parents. And more people should explore and consider this option, he says. 
Now, respecting his request, I did explore uh, the option myself, and I was able to conclude my exploration after about 12 seconds because that's how long it takes to analyze and consider shallow, shallow, vapid like this. You notice how increasingly the word conscious is being used as a stand-in for self-centered. First, Gwyneth Paltrow introduced us to conscious uncoupling, otherwise known as divorce. She and her husband explained that they wanted to end their relationship so they could focus on themselves more. The decision was conscious, yes, as all decisions are, but their conscious minds were focused on themselves and their own perceived needs and desires, rather than on their children or even on each other. It was a selfish uncoupling. And now we have conscious co-parenting or selfish co-parenting. Now, how does this differ from the co-parenting done by a married mother and father? I'm married to my wife, and we are very conscious of our children and of the fact that we are parents. We went into parenthood consciously. We've been conscious this whole time. I mean, almost literally. In fact, we've been, we've been conscious much more than we'd like to be, such as today when our boys woke us up at 4.30 in the morning because they decided that it was an hour and a half, that an hour and a half before dawn was a good time to get out of bed and play with their Spider-Man toys. I was very conscious in that moment. Or half-conscious, anyway. So what does the conscious qualifier mean here? Well, again, substitute self-centered, and it makes more sense. Van Jones has embarked on a journey of self-centered parenting. He is conscious, but mostly conscious of himself. He wanted another kid, but he didn't want to get married. He didn't want to change his lifestyle that much. And he wasn't really worried about what environment would be best for the child, so he decided to enter into this round of parenting as if it was a business arrangement. That's what he wanted to do. That's what was best for him. Self-centered parenting. I mean, he's hardly the first self-centered parent. He's no trailblazer in that regard, but he is the guy who came up with a name for it. And that's, um, and that's the other important point about this. Conscious co-parenting is supposed to be the evolved progressive version of traditional parenting. As always, though, the evolved progressive version of an old institution is exactly the same as the old institution, but minus everything that made it special, beautiful, and good. We live in a culture where everything is being sanitized, hollowed out, emptied out, stripped of all of its defining and unique features. Going from regular parenting to conscious co-parenting, it's like melting down Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture and replacing it with, a, with some kind of like plastic reconstruction. Now, from a distance, it might look similar to what existed before, but a closer inspection reveals that all of the best things about it have been destroyed. And yet somehow it's supposed to be an improvement. Platonic co-parenting is, from a distance, on a day-to-day -day basis, similar to the traditional mode of parenting in that two adults are taking care of a child. The difference, and it's a very big difference, is that the love and devotion between the parents has been removed from the equation. This is quite a problem because that love and devotion and that commitment is the very thing that holds the whole unit together. It's the foundation upon which the family is built. It's the shelter that the children can take refuge under. It's their wall of protection. It's the most important lesson they'll ever learn as, as kids. Kids need to see what a loving relationship between a man and woman looks like. They need to live with that example every day. And on top of all this, marriages are all kind of you know, weird in their own way. Sometimes challenging, hopefully often joyful, funny, fun, difficult, intense, complicated, but also simple. There are many things all at once. And that's what gives each family unit its own distinct sort of strangeness. Marriage is not only the essential ingredient of the family, it's also the spice. Now, as I said, it's everything that makes the whole family experience special and good and distinct. The leftist vision is to strip that away, sanitize it, and replace it with something bland and flimsy and boring and useless. Platonic co-parenting. You can hardly utter the phrase without falling asleep. That's how dull and sad it is. And that's why Van Jones is today, we must say, canceled. And that'll do it for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed.
Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 